0: Welcome to Improv Interviews. I'm Margot Escott and I'm really excited today to be here with Kelly Leonard. Kelly is the Executive Director of Insights and Applied Improvisation Innovation at Second City and he's a very busy man. My first question is when do you sleep?
1: Oh I, I, I get a solid seven hours every night. Of course I go to bed at like 8 30 but you know I do sleep.
0: Okay, that's great. And uh, what's it like out there in Chicago today? Uh,
1: I, I heard rain on the roof last time, uh, uh, an hour or so ago. So I think it's like off and on uh, rain and it's a little more uh, cool today. Great.
0: Well, um, cool weather is good because I'm here in the heat of Florida right now. And no. um, so there's so many questions I could ask you, but I want to yeah. start off with um, asking you about how are Nick and Nora
1: uh, my kids are great. Um, my, my son is 20 and my daughter is 16. Uh, Nick is working at the second city box office, uh, for the summer. And then we'll be doing, uh, the comedy studies program at Columbia college. So he goes to Skidmore, college uh, as a theater major, a theater and English major, but he's going to take the semester abroad. It's a semester for credit. uh, And it's his mom's program. So uh, uh, she won't be his primary teacher. She arranged to be in a different class, but yeah, he's going to study comedy for the fall. So he's going to stay home with us for a little bit. So that's great.
0: And there was something I heard that he said about his first class at improv. You just have to be nice.
1: Oh, uh, so I tell this story a lot when I do keynotes. That I was—he—he uh, he had just completed his first week of improv classes uh, uh, in our summer program. We were leaving um, Second City, and he goes, "Dad, you know what I love about improv?" And I go, "No, what do you love about improv?" And he said, "If you're nice and you're funny, you're popular." And this this was a moment where I was like, wow, all right, you're right. uh, And shouldn't we explore that more? And really, that was a moment that I sort of pinpoint where I knew my sort of career in this field might take a direction in exploring uh, uh, how powerful this improvisational process is off stage, not just on stage.
0: Exactly. And I've been working with implied improv myself down here in Florida for a couple of years now with Parkinson's mm-hmm. and autism, and some of the programs that started at Second City have been inspiring to me. Um, yeah. So I want to throw out a couple of phrases and just ask you to improvise on them. How's that sound? Okay. Sure, sure thing. Okay, play.
1: Wow. All right. So this is something. Uh, uh, I'm obviously very interested in play. I feel play is good. Um, In the world that I exist, the sort of professional world, so so Second City has a group called Second City Works, which does a lot of executive education programs, working with businesses. Um, We've uh, talked to some of our partners about their interest in play. And guess what? In the professional environment, they don't want to buy play. They actually do. They just want to call it something else. Uh, so, so this has been fascinating to me and I've talked to some other people, uh, my friend, Neil Stevenson, who was with IDEO for many years. He said the same thing. He he's, keen on on a bunch of books on play and there's an institute of play that's really terrific but when you talk about that in in his world of design thinking uh uh, business people get very nervous about play uh it's like they get very nervous about comedy even though they use humor all the time to sell their products and, and to do other things so play is good uh and play is hard to sell in a professional sense
0: now, this is more than one word. There's been an explosion of improv. I started as an old person at age 60 and mm-hmm. uh, just became addicted right away. And But now that I'm teaching and I'm marketing classes, sometimes people fear the word improv. And oh, yeah. how do you get over that? What do you say or do?
1: So, uh, uh, doing is the thing they need to do. Um, uh, I get it. Look, there's nothing I and my wife dislike more than interactive theater as an audience member. I do not want to be called upon. That is not why I'm there. Um, uh, However, every time it does happen and you participate, you realize that it wasn't so scary. In fact, it's often very pleasing and then you feel good afterwards. So really the whole key with improvisation is to get people actually just doing it. Uh, And this is so important because this ties into the work that we do with the behavioral science community uh, in our project, the Second Science Project, which is our partnership with uh, Chicago Booth. Um, There's tons of research out there about how human beings wildly um, uh, overestimate how awkward and terrible things are going to be. Uh, And then when they just do them, it always goes better, uh, almost always goes better. Or even if it doesn't go as well, it's not as bad. Uh, and, And this is why, Programs like Improv for Social Anxiety have taken off so much because that's it is this this idea of the impending doom, uh, the before and the after. And what we know about improvisation is you want to stay fiercely in the moment. You want to play the scene you're in, not the scene you're supposed to be in.
0: Exactly. I'm starting to teach Improv for Anxiety this Mm -hmm. uh, fall, so I'm very excited about it. But I hope they're not too anxious to get to the theater.
1: Yeah, right, right. Well, the, you know, the it's funny, when we started doing that program here, um, uh, they were obviously just doing their classes in the, in the evenings, but then they did a performance at the end, and it, it, the, the nerves on display were palpable, but afterwards, there were just tears of joy. People were so happy that they were able to do it. It's a great program.
0: Yeah, wonderful. And I met Mark and some other folks that have been instrumental in it, so I, I know it's mm-hmm. terrific. Okay, I- innovation.
1: Yeah. Um, I think that improvisation in some ways is a pedagogy of innovation. Uh, so when you talk about improvisation being a pedagogy, what what we're saying is like, that it's, you're not, you're not teaching to learn the games, the, the actual games are the learning, right? That, that, and and in, in so doing those, uh, those games and in, in experiencing that pedagogy, um, you realize that innovation is not a, a thing that someone has. Uh, it is stuff that someone does. Uh, so it's much more about your, your behaviors and, and your actions uh, more so than your intent and even your ideas. Because uh, nothing is innovative if it doesn't get done. You can have all these amazing ideas in the privacy of your own room. You can sing great songs to yourself, and and are they are they, if they're not heard by anyone else, are they are they even songs? Um, so I, I think that um, I I know how improvisation unleashes uh, innovative practices among the people who are able to use it on stage or, or, or off stage, um, and and what I very much try to do in, in the work that I'm doing now is demystify it um, to sort of say, you know, creativity is not magic. Innovation is not magic. And, and there's a whole set of people who are trying to tell you that so they can line their pockets. Um, there, you know, anyone who calls themselves a thought leader, uh, you know, uh, th- that that's what they're doing. You know, they've got their 10 step program for this or their nine part program for that. And, and all of it is hot garbage. I mean, th- th- there is no one solution for anything. There are uh, there's evidence uh, and, and data that exists. There's behaviors. Uh, And there's variables and environments. These are the things that we're all playing with and it makes every situation different. So what I like to think about in in our work as we're developing improvisation uh, for a variety of audiences is you're really trying to meet uh, uh, the audience, the experience, the individual, where they are at um, in, in every regard. Um, And if you can do that and you have some of these tools that you get gained through improvisation, resiliency, grit, uh, agility, uh, adaptability, um, you're gonna have a higher degree of success um, in whatever you are experiencing at the moment.
0: Exactly, and as a psychotherapist for 34 years, when I first took my improv class, Immediately I saw the connection with so much with psychotherapy and of course the fact that Viola Spolin was a social worker and I'm a social worker made the connection even more real. So um, Charles Lim, University of California, can you talk a little bit about that project because it's fascinating.
1: Yeah, so uh, Charles Lim, uh, about 10 years ago, was working at Johns Hopkins, um, and he is uh, uh, a neuroscientist. He also his, his specialty is ocular, um, so of the ear, uh, and, and dealing with, with people with uh, hearing loss and, and that sort of thing. He also is a sort of amateur jazz saxophonist, um, so he always had this love of, of improvisation, first through music. And then with his work with the human brain, he was sort of like, well, what, what is going on in the human brain when it, when it improvises? So he had to create, uh, he, he, wanted to put, uh, jazz improvisers, musical improvisers inside an fMRI machine. Mm-hmm. Um, and so he had to invent something that was not metal. So it couldn't be a saxophone and couldn't be other kinds of, uh, uh read instruments because the, the, there's too much uh, metal involved. So he actually created a plastic piano, uh, that he co-developed with someone. And then they observe the brain with all these improvisers doing both uh, composed music and then improvised music. Um, and what they discovered uh, through this is that uh, literally when uh, musicians are improvising, uh, they are in a different brain state. Uh, and that particular and I am not a neuroscientist, so I'm just I'm trying to say it as I know it. Uh, but essentially what's going on in, in, in the brain when someone is improvising is um, uh, the part of their brain that self-censors and judges goes down in activity. And the part of the brain that is open to novel experiences and self-expression goes up. Um, and then he did the study with freestyle rappers, same thing. And now he's doing the study with us, uh, we're sending theatrical improvisers to San Francisco. We've been doing this for a few months. Um, and the same the same uh, results are, are holding true. And we had lunch a few weeks ago, and he said, you know, there's many things that we need to still study and figure out about this. But just knowing that when the human brain is involved in a creative act, that it needs to be and it is in a different state, uh, says a lot uh, uh, about um, how people might want to approach Uh, creativity. Uh, And I think it supports what I was just saying before, which is it it is not creative. Creativity is not the province of a few people. We all do it. It's simply that we have to allow ourselves to do it. Um, And as you and I probably agree on this, improvisation is the gateway uh, to that. It literally uh, does the things we're talking about to get you into your sort of flow state, to use another term. Great. Judgment. Yeah. Uh, uh, judgment, uh, along with uh, fear uh, and shame, are creativity killers. Um, I, I, and this is the world we live in right now. We live in a world of fear, shame, and judgment. Um, and it is why we're all improvising so poorly uh, right now, that people aren't able to talk to each other. They're not even able to see each other. Uh, they're not able to sort of see their, uh, their differences as, as opportunities. Um so I, I mean you you have to suspend your judgment brain um, to successfully improvise, and that doesn 't mean not being responsible um, it 's also understanding that you 're always going to be judging in a certain regard, and we all have these biases and there 's noise all this stuff is going on um, uh, but it is absolutely crucial if we 're going to advance as a species. If we're going to advance as a country, if we're going to get beyond the place that we are right now, which I think we should have all be in agreement is terrible, um, we are going to have to, uh, on many occasions, withhold judgment. Um, and uh, and again, I, th- th- there's a there's a great Carl Weich uh, uh, statement. He's a University of Michigan uh, professor who says you need to fight like you're right and listen like you're wrong. Mm. And I always love that yeah, because. It 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 really contains both those things, which is we're not saying you need to take away your agency um, and we're not saying you don't need to resist um, uh, and or, or, or fight like mad for the thing you believe in. Uh, but at the same time, recognize how how much noise and bias is going on in your human brain and that if you listen like you're wrong, if you take the chance to just sort of hear everything that's being said to you, um, that is the only way that we can sort of successfully negotiate a way forward. Um, don't mean to get on a political rant, but it's a one that sort of goes to both sides, I think.
0: Yeah, it does. But I have to admit, I'm dealing a lot with post-trumpatic anxiety disorder. So. Uh,
1: oh, yeah. Well, I always ask people, people say, how are you doing? And I say in Trump-adjusted terms, I'm just fine. Um, <laughs> but yeah.
0: Okay, that brings up another word.
1: Fear again. Yeah. Uh, Here's the thing I know from overseeing the Second City auditions for decades, Mm -hmm. which is uh, if we're seeing in the first round. So we'll see like, I don't know, 900 people over a week um, and uh, they'll come up in groups of, like, say, 10 or 12 in, in the very first leg of the audition. Um, as they're walking on stage and we have their sort of list of names and we know who, who they are, uh, I'll start making a check mark next to the people that I'm pretty sure are going to fail that audition uh, 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 certainly. And it's all based on expressions of fear. Um they are sweaty. Uh, they are—they got ticks. They are hugging the back wall. They're—they're—they're they're, they're just displaying fear. You cannot successfully improvise when you're scared. You—you um, uh, you have to find a way to fight the fear or use the fear. And again, it's—it's—it's not—you're it's, it's not, not going to be able to eliminate it. You, you know, this—we're—we're we're not robots that way. But you can find ways to channel it. It's a lot like stress. You know, people talk about stress and they immediately assume it's a bad thing. It's not a bad thing. We get to great performance through stress. Uh, but it's it's moderate forms of the stress. It's sort of focused stress. It's also understanding that you can't keep yourself at a stress level for an entire day. Um, There's a reason that most improv classes are not any longer than three hours. You can't successfully improvise and have that level of focus and attention for more than that. You will burn yourself out. So you have to find ways to sort of mindfully recognize the fear, place it apart from you in the act, And then come back to it later when you might need it, when someone's chasing you down an alley.
0: I think the expression and the knowledge that fear is the flip side of anxiety has helped me in my life and a lot of other people that I work with. If you recognize that the energy of fear and anxiety is just a flip of excitement. Yeah. Just channel it that way. Okay. Mindfulness.
1: I was just talking about this. Okay. So. I talk about mindfulness a lot, which drives my wife a little bit mad because she has a mindfulness practice and I don't. Uh, I, I seem, seemingly am incapable of, uh, <laughs> of uh, a practice in that. Um, I believe it. I think it's important. I think it's definitely connected to our work. Um, I actually had I was just talking about this with a couple colleagues. Um, a couple weeks ago, I was in Silicon Valley working with Kim Scott. Uh, Kim is an entrepreneur. Uh, She worked for Apple and Google, and she wrote a terrific book called Radical Candor, Um, and we are co-developing workshops that mix her uh, theories and radical candor around feedback and communication with our improv-based exercises. And one of her, uh, uh, partners in the organization, Amy, uh, is a, uh, she teaches mindfulness, uh, and, and some other, uh, um, uh, yoga and some other stuff. And she asked if we wanted to come on day two early and do breathing exercises. And you like, you can't, I wrote a book called yes. And I kind of can't say no in that situation, <laughs> though. I was a little scared of doing this. So, so there we go. that's it. that was my book. And then, so the, the three of us uh, who, who were still around came the next morning and she had us on our backs and we did these breathing exercises and we did this for about half hour, 40 minutes. It was incredibly powerful. It was in, in, incredibly moving. Um, there was some self-discovery. There was emotion that came up. Um, and I just recognized like this is this is something I've got to explore and experience. And I'm scared of it. This is the fear thing. Right. And so what it is, I'm a little scared of it. So I push it away. The default behavior, as behavioral economics uh, has shown us, is to do nothing uh, or say no. Um, And I've got to find a way to nudge myself out of that to begin to explore some mindfulness training, because I think it's going to be very, very good for me.
0: I I know it will be. And we teach improv with mindfulness, and it's a powerful tool for people. Yeah. I'm sure you actually I think you're a very mindful person because you're in the present moment at what you're doing.
1: Yeah, I, I I think so too. I think I think I, you know, the the mindfulness aspects of improvisation, I think I can grow on to very well because I'm I'm very I'm very present wherever I am. I don't tend to linger uh in the past or in imagined future. Uh that's just some and I totally I I got that from my dad. 1000% um, I'm not nearly as well adjusted as he as he was. Uh, but one of the things I think I did inherit was this idea of, you know, r- r- I remember very early in my career. Uh, so I started producing at Second City in 1992, and I was just 26 years old. Um, and there was a uh, another theater company here called the Factory Theater Company that created a satire of Second City It was called Second City doesn't want us. Um, and they, they characterized uh, me as someone that you had to sleep with to get hired at Second City. Even though I, that was n- neither my reputation, nor true, n- nor even a thing, it was just something they did. And it, it was very upsetting to my, many of my friends and myself. And my dad is a theater reviewer and actually, he actually went to the show. And later I found out, because many of these people are now my friends who were involved, uh, who were just mortified that they had to do this in front of, of my dad and sort of recognized maybe that they'd done something that was not not great. But I remember afterwards my dad going, Do you respect these people? And I said, no. And he goes, then why would you care? (laughs) It was like that has stuck with me to to this day of like, oh, yeah, leave that stuff behind. That's all garbage stuff. Uh, Focus on what's in front of you. And it's not to ignore slights or not recognize. Um, uh, bad uh, bad behavior in, in your role in either correcting it or, or, or stopping it or, or any of that, but to let it affect me as a human being and my self-worth and, and who I am, that there, that's useful. That's useless stuff. Uh, I don't need it. No one needs it.
0: Well, your father was supportive of your work in theater, wasn't he?
1: Oh, yeah. No, I mean, I'm the I'm the Mr. six boys. When I came home and said to him I think I wanted to get into the theater, he said finally. <laughs> so like you, you know one's a banker one's a journalist one's an architect um and he had always wanted to be an actor himself ended up in radio and TV uh and no he loved it and then and then the fact that you know as a theater reviewer he got to come see and review productions that that i was producing uh or that my wife was directing or you know that that was a thrill for him so we really um it, it was a really great opportunity especially in the last few years of his life, when my son was a bit older, to start to share more stories, I learned more about my dad's life in the last three years uh, than I probably did uh, the entirety of growing up because he became more willing to share, uh, and he had a very he had a tough childhood and um, a very ri- but a very rich life, and, and he did he he didn't want to focus on the negative that's why I didn't talk about it but as we got him to sort of open up it was it it, it allowed us to sort of see him in a in a much you know uh, wider scope, um, and I think there's some value to that too. Absolutely. love oh that's the most important thing right um yeah I, I we don't say I love you enough to each other this is, this is and this is a thing I just mentioned my dad I remember my dad saying that to me later in his life that he wishes he had said he loved us more to each other um I'm pretty I'm pretty able to say that with my co-workers I mean I literally have Co-workers who, who, when they see leave, say, love you. And I'm like, love you back. And, and that is unusual in business. And that is sad. That's a sad thing. Um, and I, and this is, this is the reality. It's like, I know that's associated with gooey, you know, granola chomping, you know, liberal snowflakes. Um, God bless. Uh, and I, and I know that that stereotype exists, but, but they're, they're, I work in a place that is highly cynical. Um, it's a comedy theater in Chicago. Uh, it's, it's, you know, we can be very rough and tumble. Um, and at the same time, we can appreciate appreciate each other uh, and love each other. And it's funny, I was talking about Kim Scott in her book, Radical Candor. And one of the things in her grid is that we want you to be radically candid, which is, frank, the opposite of obnoxious aggression. Uh, because obnoxious aggression happens when you're radically candid and you don't care about the person. Uh, you can only be radically candid if you care deeply, if you love the person across from you. That's when you can say something to them that is true, uh, that is critical, um, but that also can be acted upon because they know you've got their best interests at heart. Um, So I I invite everyone to love each other uh, more loudly.
0: Storytelling.
1: I'm constantly getting asked to do keynotes on storytelling. And I tell them I don't do keynotes on storytelling. <laughs> and then, and then after I do the keynote, because they end up hiring me anyway. Thankfully, they said you just did a keynote on storytelling. I'm like, I, I didn't. Um, I tell stories. Uh, I I do consider myself a pretty good storyteller, um, and I know what they mean in, in the sense of of if you're, I do communication uh, keynotes, um, and and that and and so. so but there's a whole field of storytelling right and there's and I've interviewed for my podcast yes. people who are experts in storytelling so I know that there's sort of crossover but but I I, I wear, I'm wary of calling myself um a storyteller or saying I do storytelling workshops because I know what those other people are doing and I'm not doing that um which is a lot of sort of very design things of like Okay, you want to set up this level of uh, exposition at the top. You want to make sure you have X number of themes. I don't know anything about that. I mean, I like I've read some books. Fine. W- what I do know is that people tend to respond to authentic um, communication. I do know that if you want people to really hear what you're saying, uh, you shouldn't have a bunch of bullet points behind you on slides. In fact. Any slide that you have behind you is fighting uh, for the attention of what your words are saying. So if you're a compelling enough speaker, you actually shouldn't have a slide. I think that one of the most popular TED Talks of all time is Sir Ken Robinson. I don't think he uses any slides. Um, And I know that uh, uh, human beings crave stories and that we tell stories to ourselves to make sense of the world. Um, So that when you can share a personal story, especially if it's a personal failure, uh, that can have a lot of impact for the audience because they can relate to you. Um, I it, One of my favorite – I know everyone's talking about it, but the Netflix special Nanette uh, that the stand-up Hannah Gadsby has, has done is an incredible lesson in comedic – storytelling and dramatic storytelling all wrapped up in one where she deconstructs comedy while telling her life story and then becoming a way of for us to understand identity through someone who has been broken and has survived and been resilient through it. It is, it works on so many levels. I, I, if you haven't seen this thing, everyone should see it.
0: Focus.
1: So I focus is the beginning. Before you can improvise, um, you have to learn how to give and take focus, and you have to learn that focus is less a noun than it is a verb, and that um, uh, and, and that focus uh, uh, operates in many uh, ways. So. When, when you look at sort of especially a, a spolin exercise, viola spolen exercises, and um, uh, y- you see that there are so many exercises that are simply about where do you put your focus. Um, games like Red Ball or you're counting bricks in a wall or, you know, whatever. All those sort of listening exercises as well. And what I have found um, is profoundly true across both uh, uh, theatrical improvisers as well as when we bring this to businesses is that it's not until they start doing those first focus exercises that they realize that they might have a focus problem, um, and, and then it becomes very apparent, uh, especially in the last ten years or so, because the advent of social media and all forms of digital communication, um, we our, our brain, we're in a war right now. We're in a, a, a war of focus. Um, the, the, we have got to develop the equivalent of seatbelts. Uh, for all the media that exists right now. Uh, the fact that we're giving, you know, uh, preschool, early childhood, uh, uh, iPads is criminal. Um, with regard to, uh, you, you want imagination, you want play, you want creativity, you know, take the iPads out of their hands until later. Um, so and, and fo- my, my friend Neil Stevenson uh, always talks about uh, he holds up his, his cell phone and says in future generations, uh, this will be like the hip flask. You know, everyone used to hear on a hip flask, you know, and, and now they're looking at it like what you're drunk on technology. Um, so I, I feel like we have to reclaim our focus if we are going to get anywhere. And maybe that's part of the problem I was talking about earlier with us not hearing and seeing each other.
0: Totally agree with you on that. Totally. Yes. And.
1: Well, it's helping put my son through college. My, <laughs> uh, it's funny when I wrote, when we were co-writing the book, cause I co-wrote the book with Tom Jordan, um, The book was the book that when we sold it to our publisher at Harper Collins was called the revolution will be improvised. Uh, Tom and I have a deep and abiding love of uh, soul and fusion music uh, this is a play on the late, great Gil Scott Heron, um, The Revolution Will Be Televised, uh, uh, and uh, and they, they love the title. Uh, during the writing period, we we're, were almost done, and uh, HarperCollins uh, was having a sales meeting in Chicago, and they ha- said, hey, do you want to come talk to all the salespeople about your book? And we said, better yet, why don't we lead them through an improv workshop? And they're like, yeah, great. So we went down to this hotel that they they were in, and there was maybe like 35 people. And we gave a little talk, and then we led them through improv exercises, including the yes and exercise. And after that meeting, our publisher called us and said uh, all our sales salespeople want to change the name of the book to yes and. And we're like, why? And they're like, they could not stop talking about that as an idea. It was the stickiest of improv terms. And I think that's I think that's generally true. I think that. For most people, if you say, do, do you know anything about improvisation? They're like, oh, yeah, that's the yes and stuff. Now, that also means that can people can use it, you know, for evil. Um, I often say, you know, if it can't be used for evil, it's not a superpower. And improv is a superpower. Um, and so you can be like, "I oh, yes and that idea. When really they're no the hell out of the idea. Um, so, I, I, you know, y- yes and, and it's funny, too, because my wife and I get in this. She doesn't love yes and. She thinks yes and is kind of too... Uh, not really representative of what's really going on there, which is much more about exploring and heightening. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and she's probably not wrong, but it, there's something about that phraseology that sticks with people. Um, and I think it's a good place to start.
0: So and it's about acceptance. It's about accepting yeah. everybody's point of view. You know, the I worked a lot in addictions and the twelve step mm-hmm. programs also have so many parallels with improvisation. It's just so many things do. It's incredible. You're working on so many projects right now. Is there something you're really excited about coming up or
1: Yeah. So um I'm going to be doing an interactive keynote at the Cleveland Clinic uh, in Ohio next week. And part of what we're talking about, and it's, it's more traditional because it's the operations people, but part of what we're going to talk about is this improvisation for caregivers program that we started. So about, I don't know, three years ago, I got a call from Adam Grant. Adam wrote uh, the book Give and Take and Option B with Cheryl Sandberg. He's a Wharton professor, um, and he's become a friend over the years. And he said, I have a friend named Ijen Poo who's moving to Chicago. You should meet her. Um, and when Adam asks you to do something, you just do it because that's what his research shows. Uh, and he's right. Uh, but I didn't. I, I, Second City, I just had this fire. Um, I had okay. begun working on the stuff at the University of Chicago. So I was very busy and distracted. So I didn't do much research. I just showed up for this, this meeting with Ijen at a restaurant. And I was 15 minutes early, as I always am. And she was 15 minutes early. So immediately we're like, yes, OK, we share that. And I sit down with her and I start talking about, I, I, this is what I, what I said, I'm like, I just came from a session at the University of Chicago, can I tell you about what I was working on? And she goes, yes, just do that. So I started talking about the improvisation and behavioral science stuff. And she, I'm like, I, in about 10 minutes, I'm like, should I keep going? She goes, yes, keep going. So what I learned later is that iGen is the co-director of two organizations, one's called Caring Across Generations, and the other there is the National Domestic Workers Alliance. She's a 2015 MacArthur Genius grantee. She sits on the board of the Ford Foundation. Um, uh, People might know her as Meryl Streep's date at the Golden Globes this year. So when they brought all those activists, I, I, Jen, was there. And this woman is like the fiercest, warmest, loveliest, smartest, badass I know. Um, She is trying to change the conversation around aging and in, in, in actually get people to talk about growing old um, and how great it can be, uh, but also recognizing the link between um, uh, domestic workers who are often caregivers and immigrants. Um, and and uh, <laughs> we're, we're having a lot of issues in this area right now because we have an elder boom coming. Uh, we have so many people who are gonna need care and primarily the people who care for those uh, folks are immigrants and we're suddenly saying that they're not welcome. Uh, and, uh, you know, this is well before our, the, the election, uh, they were getting reports, um, uh, the folks at the National Domestic Workers Alliance that in various parts of the country, um, various Brown and, and yellow and non-white people were being asked for their papers. It's like, this is not the America I grew up in. And so, uh, in talking about the work that we do in improvisation and behavioral science, and then talking about the caregiving community, it became, Clear to both of us that we could all work together and it would be a very powerful thing. So we ended up developing uh, this idea around improvisation for caregivers. We gave a uh, a presentation and a beta workshop at the Aspen Ideas Festival, and the Cleveland Clinic uh, Las Vegas branch uh, commissioned uh, a six week program which we led, um, and it went great. Uh, we did that earlier this year. We got some data, uh, and what what the data what the data showed us is that uh, it was a small sample size, about twelve people. But what it showed is that uh, over half of the group felt a decrease in burden and depression. Uh, Interestingly, uh, that was almost exclusively the younger caregivers. So one of the things that we're going to examine in in round two is that perhaps with the older caregivers, there needs to be earlier interventions or uh, more sustained uh, training. We're not sure this is the stuff we need to need to explore. So we're early in this program. Um, uh, And part of what I'm doing now, as I go out and talk about it to different kinds of organizations, different organizations is, I'm looking for partners. We're looking for folks who can help us uh, fund more studies, uh, fund the opportunity to give this to people uh, in communities where they can't afford it. Um, what we know is that there are many forms of caregivers, so we have been able to sell some of this stuff into, into, the, into um, uh, uh, hospitals and, and other sort of health institutions. So I, I often say to people, um, it is my guess that in three to five years, if you come to Second City, you're going to see an entire business that is just health and wellness. Um, I think that's entirely true, um, and I think we, we're the ones to do it. We, we're we're the biggest. We've got the you know the deepest roots in this work, um, and we're in a perfect place in Chicago where there's so many of those. The intersection of that work, um, so it's kind of this is one of my goals is to spread this word and to find more people um, who can help us uh, uh, spread this. And, and, and here's what we have to do: we have to create train the trainer programs that will allow um, individuals to benefit from the development of this work at the highest level. So we have the best uh, uh, pedagogical, improvisational curriculum developers through Second City working with medical professionals or professionals in these various offshoot fields. And then what we need to do is be able to train that to just thousands and thousands thousands of thousands of people who can take it all over the world and into their own communities. So that's the thing I think right now, if you were saying what I'm most passionate about is the thing I am most passionate about.
0: Well, I can certainly hear the passion and, collaboration. I think you're a genius at collaboration. I've looked, you've done so many innovative things during your stay at second city and from music and dance and other things Mm -hmm. that you've incorporated. And and I just love that collaboration, which is part of improv as well. So, um, uh, you've met so many incredible people in your life and, uh, and you're an incredible person too, Mr. Leonard. Oh, Uh, thank you. So as I close this podcast and I hope it's not, the only one we ever do together because this mm-hmm. is fantastic uh, i I'd like to do something that one of my um inspiring podcasters does, and I'd like to close with a yes and moment from you
1: <laughs> uh, yeah, okay um, here's one uh, so i uh when i st- started at second city um, I was 21. Uh, I was a dishwasher. Um, and, uh, I, I was recently out of school and I got engaged to my, uh, uh, college girlfriend. Um, and she didn't want me working so many nights. So I started working. Uh, so I, I went to, uh, so I'd been on the night staff and I went to, um uh Ann, who ran the box office and i said hey is there a chance of daytime shifts and she said um yeah yeah why, why don't you work monday through thursday during the day and then friday nights uh and so uh i did that um and um i uh and my wife was very happy so i got married uh actually Anne, the box office manager caught the bouquet at my wedding uh which was fun because she was getting married like a month later so it was a very funny sort of uh a uh, moment um uh cut to uh, a couple years later and uh my marriage is dissolving uh and Anne's marriage is devol- uh, dissolving uh and we're working together and uh we're both getting divorced and uh we decide to go out um uh and uh I've now been married to Anne for 22 years Uh, it's Anne Libra who did catch the bouquet at my first wedding. Um, and I often say, uh, in, in meeting her, um, and falling in love with her, it's a lot like when I first got glasses. It's that, that idea of, I didn't realize there's definition on trees. Um, that's the experience that, that I had. And so the greatest yes, and of all was, uh, me finding, finding Anne, um, and, um, allowing myself, uh, to be, uh, to both accept love from her and, and be in love with her. Uh, so that's my yes, and.
0: Well, I got to say, that's the most beautiful story. It's bringing tears to my eyes. And I want to say, I love you, Kelly Leonard. This is been you too. <laughs> wonderful. I want to thank you so much for joining me today and wish you all the greatest success in the world.
1: Thanks so much.